Welcome to the Word Encounter, episode 251. We're in the book of Titus, and in the book of Titus, we find a man uh, that is on the island of Crete. Uh, He is the pastor on the island of Crete. Uh, Paul has left him there. He's one of Paul's protégés, and Paul left him there in order to direct the church. Now, Paul wrote this letter uh, while he was out of prison. He isn't in prison this time, around A.D. 64, probably from Macedonia, around the same time that he wrote 1 Timothy when he's writing to Timothy. Um, Titus is a young pastor, just as Timothy was. And as such, the letters of 1 Timothy and Titus are very, very similar. And as I, as I go through Titus, you might say, I've heard that before. And that's because you have. <laughs> and because this is the same sort of thing that Paul wrote to Timothy in instructing him and guiding him with regard to how to lead the church. And so with that, uh, let's get into Titus. Um, uh, chapter 1 and verse 1, Paul is writing his greeting. I'm going to read some of the greeting uh, this time. Other times I've skipped the greeting, but I'm going to read some of this because I find something interesting here. It says, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness in the hope of eternal life that God, who cannot lie, promised before time began. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, Timothy, excuse me, uh, Paul is reminding Titus, that uh, all of this stuff is authored by God. And remember, God cannot lie. Therefore, you can take what God says to the bank. In verse 4, he says to Titus, My true son in our common faith, grace and peace, uh, and peace from God the Father in Christ, Jesus our Savior. And so we see the relationship here where Paul says to Titus, uh, My true son in our common faith. So this is the relationship they have as a father uh, to a son. Titus's ministry in Crete. It says in verse five, the reason I left you in Crete was to set right what was left undone. Uh, and as I directed you to appoint elders in every town, an elder must be blameless. The husband of one wife with faithful children who are not accused of wildness or rebellion. So we see here that in his uh, opening statement um, to Titus, it is very similar to what he writes to um, Uh, Timothy with regard to uh, the qualifications uh, for an elder. You know, an elder must be blameless, the husband of but one wife, you know, with uh, honorable children. It says in verse 7, as an overseer of God's household, he must be blameless, not arrogant, not hot-tempered, not an excessive drinker, not a bully, not greedy for money, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, righteous, holy, self-controlled, holding to the faithful message um, as taught so that he will be able both to encourage with sound teaching and to refute those who contradict it. So we see here that the list of qualifications is relatively stiff, you know, and so he wants to make sure that those that are representing the gospel are honorable people, those of a high degree of reputation amongst unbelievers so that no reproach can be brought up on the church. And so, A lot of this stuff, like I said, he stated before to Timothy. In verse 10, he says, because there are many rebellious people full of empty talk and deception. Remember, you know, throughout Timothy and and other books, Paul Paul is, is, you know, he has this thing for uh, empty talk. He has this thing for people talking uh, against what is taught. Why? Because he's dealing with uh, the Judaizers who are constantly trying to uh, 
filter in their desire for uh, as far as um, uh, requirements, circumcision. So Paul is always having to confront this, you know, always people murmuring and try to trying to creep their requirements into things, trying to burden the people with extra requirements uh, in order to be one in good standing in the church. And so Paul is always having to confront this. It seems like wherever he goes. So this is this is a common thread throughout the territory. It doesn't matter where. So it says, for there are many rebellious people full of empty talk and deception, especially those from the circumcision party. So he's calling them out. He says, watch out for these people. You, you have to have people, your elders have to be able to refute them, have to be able to come against them, have to be able to stand strong in their belief in their faith when they're confronting these people. He says in verse 11, it is necessary to silence them. They are ruining entire households by teaching what they shouldn't in order to get money dishonestly. So here we see that Paul is calling out their motivation. It says in verse 12, one of their very own prophets said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. This is what Paul is saying. He's saying their own prophets say that Cretans, people from Crete, you know, are always liars, evil beasts, and go. Now, now, this is a gross generalization, right? I, I personally hate gross generalizations. And so, but apparently there were enough people that fit this description that uh, they had developed somewhat of a reputation. For this reason, rebuke, rebuke them sharply so they may be um, sound in the faith. And so Paul is, is, is instructing Titus to make sure that, you know, anything that comes up that's amiss and whatnot, rebuke them sharply and directly and quickly so that they may be sound in their faith. So they may be sound in faith and may not pay attention to Jewish myths uh, and the commands of people who reject the truth. And so the requirement for circumcision in order to be in right standing with God, Paul is calling a myth. It's going to chapter two. It says sound teaching and Christian living. But you are to proclaim things consistent with sound teaching. Older men are to be self-controlled, worthy of respect, sensible and sound in faith, love and endurance. In the same way, older women are to be reverent in behavior, not slanders, not slaves to excessive drinking. <laughs> They are to teach what is good so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands and to love their children, to be self-controlled, pure, uh, pure workers at home, kind and in submission to their husbands so that God's word will not be slandered. In verse six, in the same way, encourage the young men to be self-controlled in what? Encourage the young men to be self-controlled in everything. This is a message our young men need to hear today. Be self-controlled in everything. Don't get out of control. Don't be a wild child. Be self-controlled in everything. Make yourself an example of good works with integrity and dignity in your teaching. Now, remember, Titus is a young man, too. And so Titus is essentially a peer of the young men that Paul was talking about as far as being self-controlled and everything. And so Paul is saying, look, you as a young man yourself, be an example to these others with good works, with integrity and dignity. And in your teaching, he says in verse eight, your message is to be sound beyond, repro beyond reproach. 
Why? So that any opponent will be ashamed because he doesn't have anything bad to say about us. See? And so the reputation of the congregation, the reputation of God's people amongst unbelievers is important. Is very important. It says in verse 11, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people, instructing us to deny godliness and worldly lusts, and to live in a sensible, um, righteous, and godly way in the present age. Let me read that again. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, instructing us, instruct, instructing those of us who believe to deny godlessness and worldly lusts and to live in a, sen a sensible, righteous, and godly way in the present age. That goes for us. While we wait for the blessed hope, the appearance of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so we are to do all of these things. We are to live sensibly, to live a righteous life. We are to live in a godly way in this present age while we wait for Jesus. And then he says in verse, uh, it, it, no, let me back up. It doesn't say that we're to do nothing. A lot of people sitting on their hands doing nothing, waiting for Jesus. No, 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 no. That's not what Paul is saying. He is instructing us how to live in this present age while we wait. So until he comes, this is what we're to do. Live in a sensible, a righteous way. He gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to cleanse for himself a people of his own possession, eager to do good works. Proclaim these things. Encourage and rebuke and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. You see. And so Paul is telling Titus, I know you're young. I know there are many that are older than you. I know there are many that are claiming that they know more than you because they're older and are claiming to be wiser and more experienced than you. But let no one disregard you. Christian living amongst outsiders. <clears throat> this is in chapter three. And it says here, remind them to submit to rulers and authorities to obey, to be ready for every good work. Read that again. Remind them to submit to rulers and authorities to obey, to be ready for every good work. Hmm. You know what? Let me read that in the Passion Translation. It says, remind people to respect their governmental leaders on every level as law-abiding citizens and to be ready to fulfill their civic duty. In the United States of America, I'm not sure how it is in other countries around the world, we have fallen into a pattern of disrespecting our governmental leaders. <clears throat> Does it matter whether you agree with them or not? That's irrelevant according to the Word of God. The people of God are to respect their governmental level, uh, leaders on every level. That means as you talk to other people, you know, you shouldn't be slandering governmental leaders. You can disagree with them. You can vehemently disagree with them. That doesn't mean you have the liberty to slander them. That doesn't mean you have the liberty to mock them. Remind people to respect their governmental leaders on every level as law-abiding citizens and to be ready to fulfill their civic duty. 
Your civic duty may be opposing them. That's cool. That's fine. But as long as they're in office, they're to, they're to be respected. You know you can respect even your enemies? Did you know that? You can even respect your enemies. You know, you can refer to them and treat them with respect even though they're your enemies, even though you vehemently disagree with them. Verse 2. Well, let me start at verse one again. Remind him to submit to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work, to slander no one, to avoid fighting, and to be kind, always showing gentleness to all people. For we too were once foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved by various passions and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful, detesting one another. So Paul says, you know, remember, we were where they were as well. We know very well what it's like. We know very well what it's like to live without the guidance of Christ because we were there. But when the kindness of God, our Savior, and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not by works of righteousness that we had done, but according to his mercy. The, uh, through the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. And so Paul is saying, look, we were wretched just like they are wretched. But we were shown a new way, a different way, not because of anything we did, not that we deserved it, not that we earned it, not anything like that, but because of the righteousness of the one who came and because of his mercy. See, according to his mercy, and through the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit, we were shown a different way. Now, we had the choice to choose that way or not, but at least it was uh, made known to us. You see, whereas with other people, that has not been the case. This is what Paul is saying. And so we essentially have to demonstrate the same mercy to them that was demonstrated to us. He says in verse 6, he poured out his spirit on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that uh, having been justified by his grace, we may become heirs to the hope of eternal life. I love the way that that is put. We are heirs to the hope of eternal life. We inherit through Jesus eternal life. He says in verse 9, let's go back. We inherit eternal life through Jesus Christ. Meditate on that and think about that. Marinate on that. As we're going through our illnesses and ills and we may not feel well, our bodies may not be acting right, but we have inherited the hope of eternal life through Jesus Christ. That means that this condition that we're in or maybe in is temporary that we can and we do look forward to something multiple times better in ways that we cannot even think of or imagine. Verse 9. But avoid foolish debates, genealogies, quarrels, and disputes about the law because they are unprofitable and worthless. Again, this is another thing with regard to the empty talk that... Uh, Paul is always referring to 
this issue of genealogies where Jewish people get into these debates and arguments trying to prove how Jewish they are based on their lineage. Paul is saying this is irrelevant. This is stupid. This is a waste of time. He's saying avoid foolish debates. And then he says, for people that do this, reject a divisive person after a first and second warning. So Paul is saying, look, he's talking about these are people that are in the body of believers. He's saying, look, tell us, confront this person that keeps doing this. Do it once or twice. And if they refuse to listen to you and they keep wanting to be uh, uh, debaters and they keep wanting to start quarrels and disputes, you know, about genealogy and, and, and lineage and that sort of thing and about the law. He says, reject the divisive person after first and second warning for you know that such a person has gone astray and is sinning. He is self-condemned. So such a person has condemned themselves. And then he says, um, in his final instructions, let our people learn to devote themselves to good works for pressing these so that they will not be unfruitful. And that concludes the book of Titus. We're going to go on and we're going to cover the book of Philemon, which is just one chapter. (laughs) And so we will start and finish the book here. And uh, this was written about AD 60, uh, while Paul was in his first imprisonment in Rome. Um, This is a personal letter to a friend and he's writing him, he's asking him to do something. And what he's asking him to do, test the expectation of Christian forgiveness. And so as, as I go through this, we'll see that this is a difficult thing, I believe, that he's asking his friend to do. And so uh, in the area of forgiveness in your own life with other people, think about how you might react and how you should react based on the word of God. And so, first of all, he greets uh, his brother. He says, to Philemon, to Philemon, our dear friend and co-worker. And then he goes on, he says in verse 4, uh, Philemon's love and faith. I always, uh, I always thank my God when I mention you in my prayers. This is Paul talking. Because I hear of your love for all the saints and the faith that you have in the Lord Jesus. So Paul is hearing about Philemon's uh, reputation. And Philemon is a man of some means, of some degree of wealth. And so um, we go on, it says, an appeal for Onesimus. In verse 8, Onesimus is a person who used to work for Philemon. So it gets interesting. It says, for this reason, Although I have great uh, boldness in Christ to command you to do what is right, Paul says, instead, I appeal to you on the basis of love. Paul's saying, look, I could make you do this. I could command you to do this. But instead of that, because, you know, I have a lot of respect for you and whatnot, I'm going to ask you to do this. I'm making an appeal to you out of love. And so he says, I, Paul, as an elderly man, am now... Uh, also as a prisoner of uh, Christ Jesus, appeal to you for my son Onesimus. So Paul is calling Onesimus his son. He says, I became his father while I was in chains. So apparently Onesimus came to the faith. You know, somehow he came across Paul while he was uh, imprisoned. 
And this was a house arrest, if I recall, uh, around that time in Paul's first arrest in, uh, in Rome. And so apparently he had some degree of freedom with regard to receiving, you know, guests and that sort of thing. So I don't think he was in, in prison as in, in a dungeon in chains and, and that sort of thing. Um, or maybe he was in chains because he says, I became his father while I was in chains. Or maybe he's just use, using that, you know, um, as, as an example to say, well, I didn't have freedom of movement or whatever. I don't know. But anyway, apparently Onesimus came to the faith while Paul was under arrest. He says in verse 11, once he was useless to you. So Paul is telling Philemon, once Onesimus was useless to you, so they knew each other. But now he is useful both to you and to me. I am sending him back to you. I am sending my very own heart. So Paul is saying, look, Onesimus, the guy you used to know, you know, the guy who used to work for you, he's saying, I'm sending him back to you. I wanted to keep him with me so that my uh, imprisonment for the gospel, for in my imprisonment for the gospel, he might serve me in your place. But I didn't want to do anything without your consent. See, this is interesting. So that your good deed might not be out of obligation, but of your own free will. And so Paul has sensed, or maybe Onesimus told him, that there was an issue between him and Philemon. And so Paul is sending Onesimus back to Philemon in order to essentially get his consent. He says, for uh, perhaps this is why he was separated for you, from you for a brief time, so that you might get him back permanently. So Paul is suggesting that possibly what happened happened so that he could come to me get converted in Christ, and then be sent back to you in a better condition than when he left. Paul is suggesting that possibly this was the reason. He says in 16, uh, well, for, for perhaps this is why he was separated from you for a brief time, so that you might get him back permanently, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a dearly loved brother. So Paul is saying, look, he went, he came away from you. He separated from you when he was a slave slash when he was an employee of yours, but more than a, a slave, but more than employee as a dearly loved brother. See, no longer as an employee, but maybe more as an equal when he comes back. It says he is, um, he is especially so to me, but how much more to you both in flesh and in the Lord. So Paul is saying, look, he's, he's very important to me, but he's more important to you. I recognize that he's more important to you. Then he says in verse 17, so if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would me. <laughs> so, so Paul is like saying, so if you consider me to be anything, then you'll welcome him in the right way. In verse 18, he says this, and if he has wronged you in any way, or owes you anything, charge that to my account. So apparently, when Onesimus was working for or slave to Philemon, he stole from him and ran away. And somehow he came across Paul's path, got converted in the faith, and Paul is sending him back to Philemon, you know, in order to make things right. Hmm. Paul says in verse 19, I write this with my own hand. I will repay it. So Paul is saying, look, 
If he owes you anything or translate it, whatever he stole from you, charge it to my account. He says, I'll repay it. And then Paul adds this, not to mention, <laughs> not to mention to you that you owe me even your very self, not to mention to you that you owe me even your very life. He says, not to mention to you, then he mentions it, <laughs> that you owe me your very life. So you need to accept Onesimus back and ex accept him fully and don't hold anything against him is essentially what Paul is saying. In verse 20, yes, brother, may I benefit from you in the Lord, refresh my heart in Christ. Since I am confident of your obedience, I am writing to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. <laughs> and then, uh, you know, Paul uh, makes his final greeting, and that's the end of the letter. So we see that Paul is asking Philemon to wholeheartedly forgive Onesimus for stealing from him to accept him back into his household, you see, because uh, Philemon apparently had a large house because his house was also a place of meeting for the, uh, for the congregation, so it served essentially as a church slash temple for the believers in, in uh, and I, I believe this is Colossae, and so some, Col uh, some Colossians would meet in his house, Colossian believers would meet in his house. So if he had slaves, then he obviously, and he had a big house apparently, so he was a person of some means. And so Onesimus apparently steals from him, tries to run away, but comes across Paul's path, gets converted. The right thing to do is to go back and make amends essentially, so he sends him back. And he's asking Philemon to accept him back, to wholeheartedly accept him back as a brother in Christ. What would you do? <laughs> we know what the Lord expects. That should be no mystery. And with that, we are finished with today's episode. And um, as we have seen here, uh, there's so many examples of, of what it's like to live a righteous life, a godly life, a life dedicated to Christ. The forerunner to all of this is first accepting him as your Lord and Savior. For he sends out an invitation that has, trans, you know, has transferred throughout the ages, that if you believe in your heart and, is, uh, and, and profess and, 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 and uh, um, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, the Bible says that you will not be put to shame and that you shall be saved. And earlier we already went over Paul says that God is not a man that should lie. And so either he's lying or he's telling us the absolute truth. And if he's telling us the absolute truth, all that's required is a belief in our heart, a sincere belief and a public confession with our mouth that Jesus is Lord. And the word says that we will not be put to shame and that we shall be saved in that day of his coming. Whew, man. Everybody stay safe. Be blessed. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus and should he grace us with another day of life. We'll see you in the next episode of The Word Encounter. Bye-bye.